how, how's the business going to be profitable? What different, um, um, how are we going to manufacture it? How are we going to position it? Who is our actual customer? How are we going to sell? So um, taking, learning some things about product management and reading those books, I think is really helpful as well. And then the last thing that I'll say is to put, to figure out a way where you can put it into practice outside of your company. So what could you do for instance, to, um, I started several e-commerce stores when I was younger, not to, none of those companies made a bunch of money, but what I did was I was, I was able to learn how am I going to run Amazon search ads? Um, how do I run Instagram ads? How do I build a website? How do I work with creatives? How do I position the product? How do I get photography done? How do I work with suppliers in China? How do I, what this expenses that I have are tax deductible? How do I create a profit and loss statement? Do I need an LLC or an S corp or a C corp? How do I decide? And just by creating a super small business, you go through all those different exercises and you'd be amazed in a year or two how much more you know about business overall. So some good stuff here. All right, we got a good one here. How much time do you spend creating content per day? What I've done, I used to create content almost every day and what I've done is actually started to change how I, how I plan and schedule it. So I create most of my content on Tuesdays and Thursdays now. Monday is a day where I, I'm running the business. I'm getting like we have leadership meetings, we got internal meetings. I'm trying to get stuff done. Tuesday, I spend a lot of time creating content. We do demand gen live at 7:30. I'm gonna I'm doing this TikTok live, which is going great by the way. I appreciate all you being here. Um, I also am on a couple of podcasts on Tuesday. So on Tuesday, I might spend three to five hours in that day creating content that then the production team will break down, chop up for different channels. And then on Thursday, I'll typically, like you've seen probably, I do some live events with Dave Gerhardt. I did one at 12, uh, usually at 12 p.m. We actually have one coming up on this Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern called the Demand Gen Expert Series. And then I might be on another podcast. So I'll do a most of it on Tuesday and then a couple of chunks of it on Thursday. And then I have the core content. And then I actually need to go out and I, pu I publish it. And I'm going to be publishing that content, writing copy, posting it, engaging in comments and doing that. I'm doing that almost every day, primarily on LinkedIn, the podcast and YouTube get published with, without me, but on LinkedIn and Instagram and TikTok, uh, every post comes from my fingers, every comment comes from me, every heart or DM or things like that all come from me, so I'm managing all those different channels. What's up, Steven? Good to have you here. Uh, we got a question here. What do you think about events like the Forrester B2B Summit? Yeah, the Forrester B2B Summit is actually happening right now. It's in my, I'm in, I'm in Boston right now, but I, li I also live in Austin, Texas and that's down there. Um, my thinking about these types of conferences is that when they're put on by big firms like that, it's the question is, do you, do you trust the information that's being put out there and is it relevant to you? And I think that a lot of the information that comes from firms like Forrester and Gartner are built for the 50,000 employee company like GE Healthcare or Google or, you know, uh, some bit, some huge enterprise company that's big and slow and has a established category and brand, that shit doesn't work when you're 50 people or 10 people or one person. So I'm, I'm over here providing the advice digitally. You don't need to go to a summit. You don't need to fly to Austin, Texas. You don't need to do those things in order to get the information that's relevant to you. So um, I think that those events can be nice, but what would be way more effective is for that, for them to take the information that's created at that conference and put it out every day so that people can use it like what I'm doing. Okay, we got one here. What's your stance on the importance of product marketing? I think product marketing is strategy, right? Like 
Product marketing is essentially business strategy. Who are we going to sell to? At least if you think about product marketing in a broad view, like I'm, I, I'm sort of like product marketing, product management. Those are some, sort of my roots in marketing, which in product management, you're basically the CEO of the business unit. You have to figure out everything. So if you look at it in that lens, like how are we going to position? How are we going to get the sales team ready? What's our go-to-market strategy? How are we going to price this? How does that impact margins? How are we going to service customers? What's our promotion and marketing plan? All these things we need to think about in product market. I think that product marketing should be looking at. Um, and so I see that, like I break marketing into just two things. You got product marketing, you got demand gen. What is the strategy? How are we gonna sell that shit? So those, those are the two things that I'm looking at. Talent booster, hey Chris, what's the most important thing to do in a B2B service business that is just starting? Great question, I was here three years ago. Um, the most important thing to do in a service business when you're just starting is figure out what is how to, what channel am I going to produce content on so that my the people that I'm going after will see it. I'll tell you why. In 2019, I didn't know that we were going to be selling to SaaS companies. At the beginning of a service business, what you're looking for is where is my product market fit? What's my product and where is it going to fit? And so by producing information about the way that you see the world, what you're thinking, things like that, you will attract people that believe those things, that want your help, that like those things. So what I found is that I was producing information. All that I saw is every, every person that's messaging me, asking me to be on their podcast, wants to work with me, when it was just me, one person, it was all marketing leaders, CMOs, VPs of marketing, heads of marketing at B2B SaaS companies. And so it became very obvious, like we could sell to e-commerce companies, we could sell to manufacturing companies, we could sell to medical device companies, but a huge part of marketing, and to the last question to pro of product marketing, is deciding who are we not gonna sell to, which then allows you to narrow the focus, okay, if we're just going after B2B SaaS companies, then how does, how does our product change, our service, our product, how does that change to be way more specific to those exact users or buyers? And so then you get into the thing, like most software companies are gonna use Salesforce and a combination of Marketo or HubSpot. So now like we started to build out our processes and things like that around the core technology that they use. They tend to spend a lot of money on advertising because they have a lot of venture capital funding. So we've started to put the hooks in place to help them spend advertising way more effectively and measure advertising and marketing way more effectively. And so as you can see, as you want to, the first part is to try and dial in who is, the, who is our true customer. The failure of most service businesses is that they never decide this. And so they just become the company that does video production or the company that does accounting or the marketing firm. And when you do that, you essentially are like, you end up being a commodity. Nobody really knows why you're different. Nobody knows exactly if what you're selling is for them. So I challenge you to start to use a social media channel to produce content, to get the initial signals of an attract. Who are the people that are interested in what I'm talking about? As a side note, it's going to help you get business beyond podcasts, other things like that. It's going to help you move forward and learn. Okay. Content marketing, Todd, we got one from uh, Pia. Who would you hire first? Senior marketer with no industry experience or a junior one with it? Um, I think that industry experience is totally overrated. I think that industry experience mattered 10, 15 years ago when there was no internet. 
when there were, at least the internet was barely at maturity and there wasn't a lot of information, you couldn't learn stuff. So what mattered back then, your industry knowledge, you knew what conferences to go to because you couldn't find them on the internet. You had a Rolodex of people that you knew that you've met over the years. You have experience and like the nuances of an industry. And now what happens? Like you can find out all the nuances of an industry through Google by inviting industry experts on your podcast, which you could do in like two minutes by using social networks to follow content from influencers or analysts or otherwise key opinion leader type of people. All of the reasons that industry experience was important back then have now become commoditized. So what I'm looking for is I'm looking for somebody that has the core skills. Because if you have the core skills, you understand how to go out and talk to customers, you can segment, you have, understand classical marketing fundamentals, then you can take those and apply it anywhere. Like I, before I started in SaaS, I was working in medical device. We were selling into hospitals. I had never been into a, 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 a neonatal ICU or an emergency department for myself before. And then all of a sudden I'm going in there and I got to learn like, what do these people need? How do I, and within three months, just by having people on the podcast, by going out and doing customer research, by talking to a lot of smart people, I knew more about the industry than a lot of people that had had the industry experience forever because I was curious and I was learning. I had a process to do it. So I would definitely choose the senior marketer with the core fundamental skills over the industry experience just because I don't value industry experience that much. I actually think that oddly, sorry, I got frozen there for a minute. Let's see if I can get back in here. Oddly, I believe that industry experience can actually be a negative. I've worked in a lot of companies where the entire executive team all has 20 years experience in the medical device industry. And what happens when you have that? You got a bunch of old people that think the same way, that don't challenge the status quo, that are just doing the same shit that they did when they built their company 15 years ago. There's no innovation. There's no thinking about the customer. So um, companies need to start thinking about how do I inject talent that's smart, that understands fundamentals, that can disrupt this industry experience because I think it holds a lot of companies back. All right, we got another one here. What's your stance on freelancers versus in-house talent? How do you balance that? Um, so to me, when it comes to uh, freelancers, like there's a, the thing that people don't quantify in the price of a freelancer is that there's a huge management overhead, project management and management overhead to actually get the freelancers to do the work. So like, you got to have some type of process. You got to check in with them. You got to answer questions. You have to guide them. You have to give them feedback. You have to go. If one leaves, you need to figure out how to get another one. So I think that at the beginning, maybe you can do it. But like a lot of companies told me when I was starting my company, don't hire employees, hire part-time freelancers, and then just give them the work. And what happens then? Like there's a lot of risk of like, then I got I to gotta manage a bunch of freelancers instead of having someone work here. So I think people undervalue the amount of effort that it takes to actually manage a freelancer because they just look at the price per hour versus an employee. Um, my feeling is that if I was going to use a freelancer or what I would call a consultant, like what I'm looking for is somebody that brings a specific set of knowledge or skills that fit a specific need at that time. If there's ongoing work necessary that I'm going to have, then I would most likely bring that in-house. But if they have a skill or something that is hard to replicate or hard to find 
and I need that in my house, intellectual property in my company, I need that, then I'm going to be able to use that person for whatever, five hours a week, 10 hours a week, because they bring something that's unique and hard to find. And a lot of people that bring things that are unique and hard to find don't want to work at your company full time because they know the things that they know are highly valuable and they know that they could do it for five companies at once instead of working for your company and making 30% as much as they could. Uh, from Megan, how do you enable support your team to make so much social content? So honestly, I don't do much. Um, the thing that I do is I demonstrate the behaviors that I think other people should, should do. I model the behavior of what good looks like. I'm consistent, I'm committed, I write good copy, I continue as, as my profile has grown and, and the podcast has gotten more successful, I keep doing the work, I keep doing the stuff. A lot of people would be like, oh, I'm like, I'm good now, the podcast is doing good, I'll just sit back. Now we can only do one podcast a week, I don't have to work hard anymore. A lot of people do stuff like that. By modeling the behavior that I think that people should have, I, uh, I don't enable them or support them, I inspire them, I show them the way. So that's one piece. The second piece is that we invest a lot of resources so that people can have their own podcast episodes. And then we have video editors that will edit the videos for them. So we enable them by providing the resources that they need in order to create video content that we know is really successful. It's actually quite simple. Okay, yes, yeah, so we got, more, we got follow-ups here. So on the question that I asked, asked there, I say yes, but you have 70 full-time employees now. How do you do that when you have 500 full-time employees? We are at, we're at 120 full-time employees right now. And the, the, if you think about it from a business standpoint, like we spend way less on marketing than most software companies because we're smart about it. And so instead of like most companies spend $100,000 a month on Google ads, which is $1.2 million a year, we could hire like 15, 20 videographers for the same thing that B2B SaaS companies waste on Google ads every year. So as the business scales, it just becomes a, it's a cost that becomes a percentage of revenue that continues to scale with the company. Um, the same thing with our offsites and other things like that. Like as the business grows, as long as the business remains profitable, the, the, the additional things that we do will scale with the business as well. Additional video editors and things like that. Another side note of what I'm thinking about that is that we're thinking about actually creating a, uh, an additional video production sort of like agency that would, that we would be, Refine Labs would become a customer of theirs and we would have a company that does a lot of video production, but we'll see if that plays out or not. How do you make sure what they say is in line with your company vision? I don't, I don't care. What they, what they say is, is, has to do with what they believe and what they think. Oftentimes it's aligned with the mission, but I'm not here to control what people say. Some people at my company will post about health, or wellness, or running, or um, what they did this weekend, it honestly doesn't matter to me because my job is to just empower them to be creative and try the things that they, and to do, to talk about the things that they're passionate about talking about. A lot of times it revolves around like our company and vision and things like that, but I'm not here to moderate or monitor or be the, po the brand police for what people say on social. That's like, it's such a defensive way to think about it. Most companies play defense. Most companies are trying to figure out what are, what are people gonna do that's wrong and how do I stop them from doing things that are wrong instead of believing in people 
and knowing all of my people are going to do right, put my trust first and let them go out and do that. And then if they do something wrong, then we can correct, we can correct that then. Um, but it's about giving trust first, which this is why people like working at my company, why people feel empowered to post the content. I've been an employee at a bunch of different companies. I know that most companies don't give trust first, which is why most companies never have success with a social or dark social strategy because they don't make people feel safe to try new things, to be creative, to do those things. Okay. Can you talk about how you go about doing customer research? Yes, for sure, Deepak. Let's see. When I'm doing customer research, and this assumes that you have customers, so there's a situation where you might be starting up a business new and you don't have any customers, I'm gonna look at, let's just pretend you're going into a business that has customers. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take all the different business data that we have and sort the business data. Who are our best customers and who are our worst customers? And that could be through if you're in SaaS, product usage, churn rates, um, rev, you know, how much revenue they pay you. You can slice it by whatever d dimensions make sense for your business, but you're going to have at the top, here are our best customers and here are our worst customers. Then you're going to look at what is unique about the top and the bottom. And you're going to try and use firmographic data to see what is the similar about them. For instance, at the potentially at the top, like all of our customers are less than a thousand employees. All of our best customers, all of our worst customers are greater than ten thousand employees. You might see a trend like that. That gives you a note to set, to go out and say, okay, I'm going to keep that in the back of my mind. Then you actually go out and you talk to the people that fit those things. You could actually talk to the exact accounts and the people in there, or you can just talk to prospective customers that are like those companies and you're going to try and validate the hypotheses. Why did, why, what, what value to get out of this product? Why do you use it? If this product got taken away, then what would you do instead? Like you could ask those types of questions and you ask them to both groups, your best customers and your worst customers. Over time, you'll see the pattern of what is it that's unique about these customers. And it's not going to be that they're t less than a thousand employees and they're greater than 10,000. There's some other nuance inside of it as to the reason why they're bad customers and why they're good customers. For instance, um, in, when, we were, when I was working in medical device, we were looking and we would see, here are our best customers, here are our worst customers. I can't figure out what the difference is. And when I went and, out and talked to them, the difference was the population of patients that those hospitals treated. And so our best customers were all of the, all of the hospitals and facilities that took care of, of patients that primarily had dementia. That was something that we had never, never thought about, never considered. There was no data around it. And then we had all these, other all these other places that didn't use the product that well, that weren't evangelizing it, that didn't, um, didn't like it, that were churning more. And those were all the people that didn't have the patients that were like that. That's an insight. Because then if you know that, then you can change your marketing strategy. You can start to change your messaging. You could actually change your product roadmap because now you know exactly what it is about these people that makes them significant to want to buy, which is what I call an unfair competitive advantage. When you're doing customer research, you are looking for what is my unfair competitive advantage to win? How do I find the exact target customer? How do I get the insights that I can message or act on? That's what you're looking for. I hope that was helpful. We got another one here. Love the questions. Keep them coming. Do you think there's an idea there, SaaS platform, to empower your employees' personal brand? I think that there are already platforms out there that do this, but my gripe with these platforms, they call them employee advocacy platforms, is that it's not about the platform. 
It's about the culture in your company is why it works and doesn't work. Like when I worked at companies and I would post on LinkedIn in 2017 and then HR would come over to me and say, Hey, like, are you sure you like, you should take that down. Like, why would you say that? Or are you looking for your boss comes up? Are you looking for another job? No wonder nobody posts on LinkedIn at that company because they don't create an environment and a culture where that's accepted. What I've done at my company is basically we don't do any of the other dumb shit that companies do in marketing, which allows us to do the things that really work. So culture, making people feel safe, embracing failure, encouraging people to be creative. These are the, you don't need tech to make this work. That, the, those are the ingredients you need. You need people to feel safe. You need people to feel empowered. From Justin, you're the first marketer at a company. You can only hire one person on your team. What is it? Justin, uh, hopefully you can get more information. I gotta, I gotta know, maybe, I don't know, Todd, maybe we can get Justin to come on here live. I'm not sure, but you, I gotta know what, what are you good at, right? The first person that you hire is really dependent on the, you're trying to help match the, the skill gap to what you love to do or, and or what you're really great at. So you should, you should uh, be self-aware and look at what am I actually really good at? Where do I provide the most value? What's the next most important thing? So if you're really good at demand gen, you should get a product marketing person. If you're really good at product marketing and strategy and that type of stuff, you should get a demand gen person. And don't go and hire the 100K a year growth marketer and think that they're gonna save the day. Demand gen is really fucking hard. So you're looking for somebody that's experienced, that thinks differently, that um, has proven demonstrated experience that's not at the not proven demonstrated experience at Salesforce or a big company. Salesforce is going to make revenue no matter what. When I'm looking for that, I'm looking for a, a marketer that's grown a business that started from the ground. Especially if you're the only marketer, you're starting from the ground. You're looking for somebody that has experience getting those those types of companies off the ground. When you bring in people that have been at big companies. They've overvalued process. They haven't actually contributed at the level that they say. They just worked for a big brand that had a brand halo and was gonna make a lot of revenue anyway. They can't get things often, I'm making generalizations here, so it's not true across the board, but they often can't get a bunch of stuff done. They need a bunch of resources in order to do anything. There's a lot of trade-offs there. So I'd be looking oh, part skill and then part demonstrated experience. What have they done before? From Tracy, how do you formalize a customer feedback process on a quarterly basis? Any advice? By not making it formal and not making it quarterly. <laughs> um, you should just have a customer feedback engine and flow. So what I'm doing right now is I'm working to establish three hours a week. And three hours a week I spend talking to current customers or prospective customers that I believe fit our future ICP talking to them about CMOs, CROs, CEOs, talking about what are your business, not talking about how does our product work for you or how is our service or what can we do better? Where are you going in the future? What are the things that are gonna get in your way? What are things that right now you're spending, where is the big line items of your expenses? Like talking about strategic insights to get that type of, that type of information. Um, so I do that at the same time I spend three hours doing almost the exact same thing with people that work on my team Not just the leadership team not the VPs not the directors everyone at the company so I get customers I get employee insights employees are all uh, Many of them touching customers or interacting with customers. So they have ideas 
and then I'm talking with customers and leadership and they have ideas and insights. And then my job is to synthesize all that data. But the key is that I'm not sitting back there doing a survey every quarter. What I'm doing is I'm getting the insights all the time. So what you, that's what you want to really figure out. How do I create a space where through like I'm doing those two things to get insights. I post on LinkedIn and get a hundred comments in every single one of my posts. I get a bunch of feedback in LinkedIn DM. People get, uh, respond to the podcast. You all are asking questions here on TikTok. All my job is, is how do I get tons of different insights? So Tracy, I'd recommend trying to figure out how do you build a process so that it's not like a quarterly formal thing that the insights are happening to you all the time. The thing is that companies, unlike me, but many companies and many executives don't value what I'm doing right now because they think everything needs to be quantitative. You've seen my posts on TikTok about this. You've seen my posts on LinkedIn. The value is in the qualitative insights. What we're doing right now is where all the values in an executive. So if you're on an executive, if you're working for an executive team that doesn't believe that, then you're going to really struggle to get good customer insights because they're going to want you to run an NPS survey and collect a bunch of quant quantitative data that doesn't actually give you the insights that you want to be successful. All right. Another one here. What do you think about SDRs creating videos weekly as a part of their job? If they're SDRs that are selling to SDRs, then I think that would be a great idea. The, pro the problem is that oftentimes the SDRs are creating videos for the CFO, for the CMO, for the VP of demand gen, for the head of people. And that's just not going to work. I don't know what else to say. And so you, like the, somebody should be creating videos on LinkedIn on a weekly basis. It just most likely shouldn't be the SDR. Companies are using the SDR because the current state of SDRs and what that function does is broken. So they're trying to take it and look for a new thing to do with that resource. And what they really should do is not look at that, not look at the existing constraint in the business. And they should look at it straight up and be like, if we were going to start from the ground up and we wanted to create videos on LinkedIn because that's where our buyers pay attention and they want content there, then what would we do? And if you start with a blank sheet of paper, you definitely wouldn't end up at SDRs creating videos on a weekly basis. What you'd end up with is we're going to have several, either people from our customer success team, customer advisory boards, subject matter expert that we hired, whoever has credibility with our buyer. And we're going to have them do live events, live Q and A's, keynote speeches, different things like that. And that's going to be the video content that we put out on LinkedIn because that's what our buyers actually want. Um, the second piece is that SDRs are not incentivized to do this. SDRs are incentivized by meetings. Creating videos on LinkedIn is not going to help you get meetings. So there's just a complete misalignment between what that function is capable of doing versus what they're being asked to do and how that function is measured versus what is actually necessary in order for LinkedIn videos to work. It goes against the way it's measured. All right, everyone. This has been a blast. I would, if, you, uh, if you're on here and you enjoyed this part, would love if you could just do a thumbs up or leave a, co leave a comment or something. We're going to wrap up here real quick. Um, but this is the first time going live on TikTok. It's been a blast, actually. I love the engagement and the, and the stuff. And um, so would love to uh, continue to do this. I'll drop in. Maybe we'll set a time for it. But um, appreciate you all. Hope it was helpful. Hope to see you soon. Uh, thanks, everyone.
Hey, everyone, really appreciate you tuning into this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. And I just wanted to take a second to say to all of the listeners out there, we just crossed over 40,000 listeners across the world to this podcast. And so super grateful and super happy that for all of you, really appreciate you tuning in, attending the live events, engaging on the LinkedIn content, and now watching us get started up and engaging on YouTube and TikTok. And so Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you. And if you haven't already, if you've gotten value from the podcast, I would really appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts in the review section of this podcast and leave a quick review or a rating. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you very much. And we'll see you for the next episode.